Father, the joy that we anticipate to enter heaven's courts, to cross that finish line, to be once and for all at the end of our our race, no longer a struggle against sin, no longer contending with this world uh, and the system here, but to know that a time is coming when we've arrived at the place of eternal joy and a place of uh, perfect blessedness to be with our Savior Jesus and to worship Him for all eternity and to Uh, be a part of your remade world of perfection and peace and glory, to reign with Him and to know uh, you in a way that's more full uh, without the limitations that we have now with an eternal increasing appetite for all that you are for us in your triune beauty. God, we long for that day, to be free of sin and temptation, to be uh, ultimately united with our Savior forever. So Father, prepare our hearts even now as we open your word. Use it to sanctify us and to prepare us for the next step towards that heavenly destination, that finish line of this earthly race. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, and I invite you to take your Bible and open it to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 is pretty much the center of the Gospel of Mark, and we've been in the Gospel of Mark for quite a while, but it's, it's well worth our attention. Appreciate Jeremy's uh, reminding us of why we gather in a group like this, primarily composed of college students and those who who love college students. I'm not a college student anymore. I don't know if you knew that, but, uh, but I do love college students. And there are so many things that, that Jeremy brought up that uh, I think are good reminders of, of why we're here. And, and one of the things he mentioned that I would like you to be thinking about is just the importance and opportunity that you have at this age and stage to be an evangelist, to be an evangelist, to be engaging the world with the gospel, to be an example to your peers of someone who lives very differently because you live for Jesus Christ, because you live by faith in the Son of God who died for you and who gave his life for you, who uh, lived the life you couldn't live so that you could be forgiven of all your sins. That's the opportunity that's before you that is not unique to your college years. You should always be an evangelist, but Something about the social and academic educational setting in which you live, the being surrounded by your peers, it is a prime time to tell people about Jesus. And you're simply telling them what he did in your life. And I don't know how many evangelistic encounters you've had in your life, but I want to read to you one of the most provocative encounters that Jesus ever had with someone who was seeking eternal life. And I'd like to draw some lessons from it this morning. It's a passage that I'm sure is familiar to you. It's one that I've been looking at for the entirety of, of my Christian life and one that I, I really think that there's some fresh lessons to draw for us as we think about reaching this city, these campuses for Christ. Uh, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. I'll focus on the first half of this story today, but I want to read all the way through verse 31. Mark 10, verse 17. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. 
and come, follow me. Disheartened by what Jesus said, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the very word of the living God. Unusual evangelistic encounters have been the mark of my life in ministry. Mostly because one of my first roles in the church I grew up in was working with with youth, junior high kids, telling them about Jesus. And anytime you talk to a junior high student about anything, it's an unusual experience. After that, I got involved in short-term missions, and we sent high school kids all over the world to uh, do lots of different evangelistic work, sometimes construction, but most of all, in my original land, uh, we did kind of street drama. That's right, street drama. Face paint, a big portable music system, we could draw a crowd. We'd do some skits that hopefully, you know, we're not too culturally insensitive and draw this big group of people in a slum in Manila or uh, some place around the world. And it was sometimes my responsibility to get up and explain the skit and with a translator tell people the gospel. When I was in college, I remember learning different evangelistic techniques uh, when you were kind of doing the, the cold call evangelism, uh, early versions of Ray Comfort stuff about the Ten Commandments. You know, have you ever stolen anything, even a paperclip? What's that make you? It makes you a thief. Thieves go to heaven. You know, like a, like a script kind of a deal. Uh, other things, you know, the, the, the colorful little books, and each color represents a part of the gospel story, or, or tracts, uh, little booklets that that have some provocative thing written on the front. Uh, These are all kinds of techniques that I've I've seen in my life and and employed, I think, all of them uh, in trying to tell people about Jesus. Uh, It's not very often someone initiates that conversation outside of a, a friendship, a relationship, except about a month ago. I was having breakfast in Montrose, as PP3 calls it, with Paul Pitts, the third. We were having breakfast together, just some dude discipleship, and we were sitting there at this mediocre breakfast place, and uh, this lady comes up to us. She had been sitting with a group of friends her, her age, an older lady. Uh, she was, well, she was dressed like an older lady with, with some money, like kind of had a shirt that said California on it. She was probably in her 60s, had some kind of fancy flowery pants on, 
And she walked right up to our breakfast table, like intentionally up to us, and said, how are you guys doing today? And, you know, we're right as rain. So she started to just launch into kind of her greatest concerns in life. She was very concerned about the drought in California. And she was very concerned about the leadership of California. And as a fiscal conservative myself, I, I, was, I was wide open to this conversation. I wondered where it was going. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know where it was going. But next thing you know, she's, she's doing all the talking. And she said that she had a lot of hope in our, our overlords and governors and things. And that's when I realized there was more than one great goal fixed. So she kind of wanted to talk about politics and climate change. And you know how John MacArthur and I feel about climate change. So she was just, she talked for minutes about solar power. And, and I've never been opposed to solar power. I, I derive all kinds of power from the sun. And, and there was hardly a chance to get a word in edgewise with this, this eager uh, lady who, who engaged us in this monologue until she asked us a question. Two guys, a white guy and a black guy, having breakfast in Montrose, being asked a question by a 65-year-old lady. And she said, what do you guys think is the biggest problem we face? I mean, it was like throwing a puppy to the lions. It was like giving crickets to an iguana. I mean, it was just, we were, we were like, we could hardly stay seated. And we tried to stay cool, though. She's standing, we're sitting, we're still waiting for our mediocre breakfast. And she asks us, what do you think is the greatest problem in the world today? And I, I said, I don't think it's the weather. <laughs> it's my icebreaker. I said, there's so many problems in the world today. The one that, the one that I think of the most, I think the, the, one of the greatest problems in the world today is lawlessness. Lawlessness. And she said, yeah, it's bad out there, isn't it? I said, it is. It's bad. You know why? Because our hearts are bad. They're lawless. We don't want to follow the rules. We don't, we, we don't want to do what's right. People don't even believe what's right and wrong. So I, I did a little, little talk and you know, a few thoughts on solar power. And I didn't talk about solar power. And then she turns to Paul. No, I think I, think I teed him up. I think I said, Paul, what do you think? is the greatest problem our world faces today. And Paul, he'd been ready since this lady walked up. <laughs> and he's a college athlete, formerly. So, so he's fast, and he had an extraordinary patience in the moment. And he, <laughs> what was it that you said? You said, suppression. <laughs> Paul says, greatest problem in the world today is the suppression of the truth. It was awesome. So I do, a, I do a sermon on lawlessness. Paul does a sermon on the suppression of the truth. Like Paul's going, because this lady was like a gardener. So Paul's like drawing from the garden. Like God made that. He's doing all this, you know, suppressing of the truth. And people, he's, he's, he's God's, uh, God's presence, God's power, his eternality is all on display. I mean, we're just preaching. And next thing you know, the mediocre breakfast is here. We're not eating at all. We're still preaching over the breakfast. And she's just going like, I thought solar power was going to help me. So we talked to her about Jesus. And, and around that time, she thought this was probably a bad idea. And she, I don't think she even, I think, I don't know where she didn't even go wherever she was intending. She just went back to her table. And that was the end of our encounter with the rich, old ruler. 
of Montrose. <laughs> it's not often that people ask you a question that's such a softball in an evangelistic encounter. But most people keep to themselves. But here in Mark chapter 10, you have Jesus, the greatest evangelist ever, the one who inaugurates the kingdom and announces the gospel, the one who in Mark chapter 1 said that he came to preach faith and repentance, being approached by a person who we've come to know as the rich young ruler, right? And that's a synthesis, that rich young ruler thing. Mark is the one that tells us he's rich, and he doesn't tell us in like, until like the 22nd verse. So he doesn't lead with calling him a rich guy. Matthew's the one that tells us he's a, a person of significance in the synagogue. He's a ruler of some kind. He has a status in society. And Luke is the one that tells us he's a younger man. And so we have combined this account, uh, rightfully so, and, and we've got to know him as the rich young ruler. But we already have a problem as listeners to this. Because only some of us are young. Hello, fellow young people. <laughs> and very few of us have much authority, significance, power. And I don't think very many college students are rich. And so my immediate concern in talking to you about a passage that you've, you've seen a million times if you grew up in the church is that his problems are not your problems. That his concerns are not your concerns. And that's why we can't isolate Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and what follows from what we've learned before. And what is it that we've learned before? Well, it's that Jesus has been defining and directing what it means to follow him. Jesus has been showing his disciples, and Mark, through his gospel account, has been teaching us what it means to follow Jesus. And from the very beginning, Jesus has been showing us that following him is on his terms, not ours. At the outset, when Jesus called his very first disciples. In chapter 1, verse 17, he said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And those first disciples immediately leave behind their occupation and their business and their family and they follow Jesus. Literally, actually, physically, immediately follow him. As Jesus continues to preach this message of the gospel that he announced in Mark 1.14, repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. He continues to call people to follow him. He heals diseases. He casts out demons. He demonstrates his authority and power in this world. And then he calls these apostles to follow him. And they do. They, they go where Jesus goes and they sit under his teaching and they submit to his instruction. And Jesus identifies them as his, his true family when his mother and his brothers come and, and try to gain an audience with Jesus and try to control Jesus. Jesus says, those who follow me, those who do the will of God, they're my brother and my sister and my mother. Mark 3 verse 34 and Jesus tells his disciples about the nature of the kingdom, that the message goes out to all kinds of soil, but only some respond to it fruitfully. In other words, there's lots of fake disciples, lots of followers who falter and, and don't finish the race. And Jesus continues to heal and he continues to call people to follow him and he continues to demonstrate his authority and have mercy on whom he has mercy and the religious leaders oppose him and they stand in his way and Jesus continues to speak truth to their uh, 
false teaching. He continues to demonstrate to his disciples that his commitment is to the word of God, not just to the commandments of men, not to traditions. In fact, he treats the traditions of the religious rulers with disdain and reminds them that uh, true defilement comes from within a person, not from outside of a person. Jesus has an allegiance to the word of God as he continues to call these people to turn from their sin and follow him. Things have turned cross-shaped in Mark's gospel. Because Jesus has blatantly told his followers that the Son of Man, a divine title from the book of Daniel that he uses to identify himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things, chapter 8, verse 31, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. His disciples don't understand his passion prediction. And so Jesus further underlines what it means to be his disciple when he tells the crowd and all those closest to him, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his own soul? What can man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus continues to call them to lay down their lives and to follow him. He reverses their paradigm of greatness by saying that he's not the one who came to be served, but the one who came to serve. He teaches his disciples that if they want to be great, they must be servants of all, that those who are for him are for him, and those who are against him are against him. There's only two kinds of people in this world, and there's only one way to God. And he's shown them that that way to God is a way of humility, a way of smallness, a way of insignificance. It is lowering yourself and coming to Jesus Two times he's used the example of a little child. And the disciples' understanding of of significance, of influence, of blessing, of having God's favor is being turned upside down. And then as Jesus starts moving towards Jerusalem, a man of significance in society who runs after Jesus and falls down before him They've seen this before, but it was a demonic attack in chapter 6. It wasn't someone of social status. Big timers in the Middle East, they didn't run and throw themselves down at somebody's feet. But this man does. And there's so many lessons we could draw out of this story of of the rich young ruler. But I'd like you to see two of them. Two of them that have everything to do with what Mark's purpose is in telling us this story at this point in the gospel. Two of them that show us further what it means to be a real disciple of Jesus. What's required to follow him. Two two matters that, that Jesus draws attention to. And you don't have to be young for this to apply to you. And you don't have to be important In fact, it would help if you're not. And you don't have to be wealthy. But this is is a story, a real encounter with Jesus that's directed at our own hearts to show us what we must do if we are to live forever with Jesus. If we're to inherit eternal life. An evangelistic encounter that on the face of it seems to go terribly wrong. I mean... What sort of answers is Jesus giving this man, this apparently eager seeker? He redirects his question. He throws the Old Testament at him. And then he talks about money. I mean, no YouTube evangelist is doing that. That seems to be a whiff every time. But Jesus, omniscient Jesus, who knows the heart of every man, and who has a genuine love for lost sinners, does heart surgery on this eager, would-be disciple. 
to show us what it means to truly follow Him, to show us what it costs. So let's look. Jesus on a journey, interrupted by a seeker who says these words to the Lord. Verse, eight, verse 17. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow. To inherit eternal life. That's the question. It's an, it's an excellent question. It's a question you would love to be asked on the streets of this city. It would be a question if your lab partner in chem class asked you that question, you would feel like this is the day the Lord has made. Let me rejoice and be glad in it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus doesn't focus on his question immediately. Instead, Jesus seems to pick on something that the man says in introduction. He calls him good teacher. It's, it's, like a, it's, it's, a, it's a title for a rabbi or a teacher. Now, it's an unusual title because it's not in the Bible anywhere else. It's not in the Old Testament. But to call him a teacher made sense, but he calls him a good teacher. The Jews reserve that word good mostly for God. And Jesus isn't here going to deny that he is God. That's not what he's doing. What Jesus is going to do is the first lesson I want to draw. Jesus exposes something in this man. He exposes something about what this man knows about the character of God. And that's the starting point for us. I want us to think carefully about the character of God. Jesus says to him after he speaks those words, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The primary goodness of God. It's the first of God's moral attributes as far as systematic theology goes. To speak of God's goodness is to speak of God's attributes, His character, who God is. But whenever you're talking about the character of God, you're not talking about an ingredient of God or something that God possesses or a kind of standard outside of God that we could measure and say, well, God is good and this is goodness, so therefore God is good. That's not how God's character, God's nature works. See, goodness, like all of God's characteristics, like all of God's distinct attributes, is not had by God or possessed by God. It is who God is. Similar to the holiness of God, we don't just mean that God is holy, but God is the measure of what it is to be holy, that He Himself is holy. He doesn't just have some holiness. Likewise, God doesn't just have some goodness. That's why when you think about the fullness of God's character and nature, it's not a pie chart. Well, he's 76% good and 24%. Did I get that? Holy and etc. All of God is goodness. And Jesus sees this man's first error in not acknowledging that his problem is actually a theological one. He doesn't truly understand the character of God because his heart, as we'll soon see, is not Godward. It's selfward. He sees in Jesus the goodness of God. He sees in himself a level of goodness that I think is probably genuine. But he doesn't see the intrinsic goodness of God. It's why Jesus would say something that to our ears sounds so shocking. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
This man is being confronted with the absolute goodness of God. And with a a charge to look at God and God alone. You see, this young man was so much like these disciples, so much like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, whose religion consisted of so much focus on self, on fulfillment of the law, on obedience to the commandments, on external righteousness and and extra traditions and lots that they were doing in order to find God's favor. Their religion was so bound up in blessing that when they saw someone that was blind or crippled, they, they thought automatically deserved it. And so the disciples asked questions like, who sinned, the blind guy or his parents, that he was born that way? Everything was retributive to them. Everything was, was earned. Everything was cause and effect. And so they thought about their works and their righteousness. And as far as they could do, they could measure God's blessing by observing a person's life. And if they had a, a terrible and a difficult life, God had not blessed them. Therefore, they were not righteous. If they had an abundant and wealthy life, if they were blessed of God, lots of health, lots of wealth, well, they must be a righteous person. And they understood there was exceptions to that. There was wicked people who were rich. But among God's people, that seemed to be the indicator of God's favor. I mean, that's why Job's friends were so messed up. They had to solve this, and they thought with their human eyes they could solve Job's dilemma. Well, in a reverse kind of a way, here you have a man who's apparently Job-like. He's blameless. He seeks to honor God. He's asking about eternal life because for all that the Jewish people did to try to earn their salvation and try to merit the righteous approval of God, they did not have assurance of eternal life. And that's what this man seeks is assurance. And so Jesus directs him to the character of God, that God and God alone is good. That this man's goodness must be seen in comparison to the goodness of God. That Jesus' goodness as a teacher from this human perspective can only be seen through the goodness of God of God. The goodness of God being that moral attribute of His generous, bountiful, self-giving goodness, love, devotion, mercy, all that comes from God is because God is intrinsically good. And any display of His grace or blessing or kindness or care or providence or sustenance or, or His good wisdom or His, His, His benevolence all flows from God's character being intrinsically and completely and eternally good. And so any basis for eternal life and assurance for eternal life comes from the fact that God is not capricious, God is not wicked, God is not evil, not malevolent, God is good. And so Jesus directs this man to a theological problem that only the Son of God could identify in this moment. That he doesn't have God's goodness in focus. And Jesus, not a transactional evangelist by any means. It would be so much easier to say, repeat after me. Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending your son. Would have been really easy to lead this guy in a prayer. Or to give him four steps to eternal life. Or to give him a tract with a cartoon on it. Jesus directs him to the Torah, verse 19. Because the nature of God, the character of God, is on display in the law of God. And so this is still showing us the nature of God here, verse 19, you know, the commandments. And he rattles off these these commandments, Jesus does. And it's an unusual list because it's not ten commandments, 
He picks six of them. And the way we understand the, the commandments historically is there's two tablets, right? Moses had two tables of the law. There's the first five, and then there's the second five. And Jesus draws from that second table of the law. Commandments, the first five are, are Godward commandments. Remember how Jesus summarizes the commandments to help you understand those two tables. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. That's the first tablet of the law. That's those first five commandments, the Godward commandments. Uh, there is only one God. Have no idols before Him. Those commandments. Commandments about not bearing false witness. The commandments about and not making graven images. Those are the commandments that occupy the, the basis and majority of that first table of the law. Jesus is summarizing those when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. The second table of the law has to do with the believer's relationship to others. Thou shalt not murder, like don't murder others. Do not commit adultery, seventh commandment. I shall not steal, the eighth commandment. Those are all having to do with other people. And so Jesus summarizes that by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus' summary of the two tables of the law is well known. But Jesus draws specifically and mainly from that second table of the law by saying, you know the commandments. Do not murder, the sixth commandment. Do not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. Do not steal the Eighth Commandment. He's doing good. He's going in order. Do not give false testimony. The Ninth Commandment. And then he says, do not defraud. The mm, Commandment. Mm, mysterious. This will be one of the questions I ask Jesus when I get to heaven. How come you said it like that, Lord? Lots of different opinions on this. Some say he's exposing this man's desire for wealth, which we know is, is the case in a moment, his commitment to his wealth. Maybe Jesus is, is hinting at, at something shady in this guy's finances or, or just his affection for, for money. But defrauding is, is really, a, it's the 10th commandment acted out. The 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's stuff. And so, since all these commandments are put in, in acts of evil, murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, covetous is something from the heart. And so when you act it out, that looks like defrauding oftentimes. That's the best explanation that I could understand of why Jesus uses it that way. And then another kind of mysterious moment in this list is Jesus brings the, the fifth commandment to the end of the list. Honor your father and your mother. And I don't think the, the key here is, is solving, you know, why did Jesus say it exactly this way? And why did he put the fifth commandment in the tenth spot? I think Jesus is just simply rattling off the, the second table of the law, familiar to every Jew in the, the whole world. And so he's saying, you know the commandments. In other words, this is the agreed upon way to find favor with God, to obey God. We're supposed to love God and we're supposed to uh, love others. And so it looks like not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, not lying, and not defrauding your neighbor and honoring your father and your mother. It's as simple as that, isn't it? But when you link these commandments, the second table of the law, with the goodness of God, I don't think Jesus is trying to do a gotcha on this guy. And so many people, when they study this and they preach this, they say, well, you see, Jesus says that there's a lot more to the law because it has to do with the heart. And that's true. You know, there's something underneath murder, and that's anger. And there's something underneath adultery, and that's lust. But that's not what Jesus is doing here, because that's not what Jesus says here. And when he asks these questions of the rich young ruler, he responds by saying, I've kept all these from my youth. Now, is that like some really self-righteous statement? I don't know, because the next moment Jesus says, 
Mark says Jesus looked at him and loved him. If that was a statement of like deep, gross hypocrisy, I don't think the author would then say, and Jesus loved him. Because you may have noticed, Jesus doesn't love deep and gross hypocrisy. I mean, in this guy's mind, he could say, I've never killed anybody. He's been faithful and not broken the bonds of marriage. He hasn't stolen. He hasn't lied under oath. He hasn't defrauded anyone. And he honored his father and his mother. I think he genuinely believes that he's kept the commandments. And certainly we understand that this young man is not perfectly sinless. And I think that's something he would understood as well. What Jesus is underlining here is the way that everyone in this religion thought about getting to heaven. And he's trying to show this guy he has a theological problem about the goodness of God. He's not thinking in a Godward way. He's thinking in a human way. So Jesus throws the human way right back at him. In the easiest part of the tablets, not the have you loved God perfectly, but have you lived this stuff out? And he says, yes, since I was a youth, which most young people should be able to say, I have not perjured myself in court. I have not shot anyone. I have not cheated on my wife. Now, granted, this is in 2022, so maybe you can't say that. But I don't think the idea is that there is Jesus is trying to expose something deep underneath these motives that would have been sinful. You know, this, the sinful thoughts that this man had. That's, that's true, but that's not the agenda here. Because he says, I've done this. He's tried to be obedient. Genuinely. He's tried to do what was right. He's tried to earn his way to heaven. He has tried to be a good person because he knows that God is a good God. But he doesn't understand the exclusive goodness of God. Because the exclusive goodness of God is on display in his son. That's verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You okay with that, young Calvinists? Or does that bother you? You need to be okay with it. John 3.16 doesn't need to feel like Greco-Roman wrestling to you. Oh, how do I get out of God so loved the world? I'm a Calvinist. The electing love of God is not in opposition to the benevolent love of God that He has for all His creation. And when Jesus looks at this eager seeker, Jesus genuinely desires to see him saved. Jesus wants to see this young man brought to be one of his disciples. Otherwise, Jesus would not have engaged this man. Jesus genuinely loved this man. A compassionate love that all of us ought to have for lost people. Jesus didn't see this encounter as an inconvenience in his life. Jesus didn't blow it off and say, well, God's sovereign, you'll you'll get saved eventually. Jesus engaged this young man because Jesus loved this young man. Loved him enough to confront him about his theology. J.C. Ryle underlines this moment in this narrative where it says Jesus looked at him and loved him and Ryle says this, we ought to feel compassion when we think of the wretched state of unconverted souls and the misery of all men and women who live and die without Christ. No poverty like this poverty. No disease like this disease. No slavery like this slavery. No death like this death in idolatry, irreligion, and sin. We may ask ourselves, where is the mind of Christ if we do not feel for the lost? Reader, 
I lay it down boldly as a great principle that the Christianity which does not make a man feel for the state of unconverted people is not the Christianity which came down from heaven 1,900 years ago and is embalmed in the New Testament. It is a mere empty name. It is not the Christianity of St. Paul. It is not the Christianity of Jesus. Jesus cared about the souls of men. And Jesus loved this man, but unfortunately, Jesus knew that this man loved himself more than he loved God. And so the second problem that's identified with this would-be disciple isn't just that he doesn't understand his theology right. It's that he doesn't understand that there's only one thing he needs to do. Jesus gives him four commands here, but there's only one thing this man needs to do. And there's only one thing that you need to do. And it doesn't have to do with how rich you are or how important you are or how young you are or not young you are. There's one thing to get eternal life. There's one way to eternal life. And Jesus identifies it for this man. And it's this. He didn't just misunderstand the depth of the character of God and his goodness. He misunderstood what that goodness looks like. That goodness looks like Jesus. The problem is that this man won't follow Jesus. And that's what it always comes down to. Not a hundred things, this one thing. And the goodness of God really just segues into this because the display of God's goodness and mercy is the sending of His Son. And Jesus looks at this this man with compassion and love and tells him the truth. You lack one thing. Four imperatives. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Every one of those first three imperatives in an aorist tense, it's, it's a, a tense of this is a done action. This is something you just do. What are you supposed to do? Right now, you just get it done. You get rid of everything that's in the way. And then in the present kind of tense, Jesus says a different tense, come and follow me. That's the primary command. That's the main thing. You see, to be saved, you don't have to sell everything you own. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus doesn't need you shoeless and cashless, but Jesus knew what was in the heart of this man. And the barrier to following Jesus was his great wealth. And maybe it's the same for you. Maybe you love money so much that you will not follow Jesus because you can't let it go. It occupies your mind. You're hungry for more. But maybe it's something else. Unrighteous relationships, lust that whispers in your ear, a desire for your own greatness and glory. I don't know what it is, but Jesus does. And he's telling you, whatever it does, whatever it is, needs to be put aside so that you follow after him. That's what it means to have eternal life. That's what it means to know Jesus savingly because this man possesses everything. It says disheartened by what he's saying. The word is his face fell down to the ground. He went away sorrowful, torn up in his heart, for he had great possessions. You see, this young man's wealth kept him from following Jesus. And Jesus knew that the only way he could follow Jesus was by actually leaving everything behind to follow him. Whatever it was that was an obstacle to faith in Christ needed to be removed. And for this particular man, it was his extraordinary wealth. This rich young ruler needed to follow Christ. That's it. It wasn't a certain level of righteousness he needed to achieve because in the end, what happens is this young man went from being rich to being eternally poor, from having everything to having nothing, from great possession to no possession because Jesus identified there is something you don't have, a willingness to follow me. This young man would lose his youth someday because you can't hang on to it. And he would become old and he would die. 
And he would fail to realize in this moment that there was only one way for him to stay young forever. He was rich and he was young and he was a ruler. He was influential. He was esteemed. He was significant. He was powerful. He was religious. And that slippery possession of power, he'd lose that too. He could have ruled and reigned forever with Christ, a co-heir of eternal glory, but he walked away because he lacked one thing, a willingness to put it all aside and follow Jesus because that's what discipleship is. He lost all his power, all his wealth. He'll lose his youth. He possessed so much that he couldn't let go of it. And he failed to see he couldn't keep that which was not eternal. He needed to see that Christ was worth it, that following Jesus was everything. He should have lost all to gain everything. And this story exists as an eternal testimony to all of you who have experienced the general love of Christ for lost sinners. Whatever it is that's holding you back from following Jesus, set it aside. Heed this warning. Whether it's influence or wealth or youth or lust or a thousand other things that keep you from being a disciple of Jesus, Jesus is worth losing it all for because this man's assets became his greatest liabilities. Samuel Rutherford said, he who gains Christ loses nothing. And this man was moral, and he was significant, and he was religious, and he was fastidious, and he was competent, and he was law-keeping and successful, but he was unwilling to follow Jesus. That's what discipleship's about. But Jesus won't let you off the hook there. He needs you to understand that one of the things that can beguile you more than anything else and prevent you from being a disciple is your money. So next week, bring your money and let's talk about wealth and discipleship. Father, thank you for your truth, your word. Help us to see all our possessions rightly and be willing to do anything to follow you, to follow your command, to follow you where you go. Only you are good. And we need eternal life and assurance of that eternal life. And it's only found in you. I pray that we would love God and follow Jesus and never trust in our riches, but instead, like children, come in humble dependence. Help us to adopt the perspective that sees that Jesus is worth everything. To gain Christ is to lose nothing. And to know that in Jesus we find that treasure that can never perish, never fade. The good of our souls, the forgiveness of sins, and heaven's eternal joy. May we be astonished at how impossible salvation is and therefore follow Jesus with all our hearts. In his name, amen.